I, I don't. I don't need to be kind of mic'd in most contexts. <laughs> yes, um, I can relate, but for <laughs> recording things, it's yes, actually yeah, quite important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. And I'm Jolie. And this is... Tom Clements. Tom, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you. So could you first tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be here at Manchester? Uh, Yes, I'm a a PhD student in the uh, casually named Department of Classics, Archaeology, Ancient History and Egyptology. Um, I only work on two of those. I'm doing a PhD on... Uh, Sparta, uh, from the roughly the 800 BC to around 400. And I'm looking at notions of and definitions of and extent of territory and how how Sparta kind of managed its its territory in antiquity, broadly broadly speaking. Right. And what was sort of your path to PhD? Did you come straight through? Uh, I mean, that's very boring. Um, <laughs> I, I I did two degrees before doing a third mm. um, <laughs> quite in, a classic in, approach in quick, in quick succession mm. with with no breaks <laughs> so I, were they at particular institutions i assume they were <laughs> yes no they i did them at universities they Good. weren't they weren't self-certified degrees <laughs> um i am currently trying to be self-certified as a catholic minister but that's um uh, that's my business i'm not i'm not willing to talk about that no, so yeah, I did them at universities, Lancaster, previously mm. where I did history, and I did a thesis on uh, cla- uh, classes of liberated slave in uh, Sparta, and the kind of territorial and kind of spatial questions that I was uh, interested in just kind of naturally grew out from, from, from that piece of work, hence why I'm now doing a, a, a project asking similar questions, but on, on a greater scale. And um, what year are you in, sorry? Uh, I'm in my third year, but I, I uh, <laughs> let's let's not talk too much about that. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> in your third year and looking into the future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I look very good though. I oh. want to say that. Yeah, off that's the back. Can't, can't uh, argue hasn't, with that. Uh, I haven't become haggard with stress um, <laughs> because I'm aware that you know this is an audio format. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if only we could all say the same. I've <laughs> Exactly. I've aged a hundred yes. years. <laughs> Why can you be seen? Or as, like, <laughs> I wish I could say that. Well, I because there's a camera, I want it on me as well. You know, because I've I've dressed up for this. I, I shaved my mustache this morning. I must uh, say, it looks incredible. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. I, I have a mustache for the people listening. <laughs> we should have done a video. If, just you, to... if you Google me, it won't it won't come up. <laughs> Uh, so you mentioned that you did a thesis on Sparta before yeah. uh, coming on to that. Was there anything in particular that sparked that interest? I mean, it was very much that when I when I did undergraduate history, I did courses on ancient Greek history, and it was very much uh, the history of Athens and Sparta, and sees Greek history as this kind of quite fixed binary, doesn't really you know allow for a lot of diversity. Greece is a place of around a thousand different cities, but uh, getting back on the point, so the, um, I did my undergraduate studies, and Sparta always seemed to me a place that was more poorly understood and that was a bit stranger, but that 
Athens also itself seemed to be a bit of an exception to the rule. So it was a kind of lack of interest in Athens and Athenian history that kind of uh, first attracted me to Sparta, that it was quite a different sort of society. And that is a, broadly something that I've continued to think, but in, in quite different ways now, mm. with the benefit of more time and research. There is something uh, very specific about uh, the structure of Spartan society, isn't there? Even though you know, I, I know that Athens was unusual in have, trying out the democracy experiment, yes. but Sparta really went to the next level with doing things differently. Could you give us a bit of background on that? Yeah, so Sparta um, broadly has kind of three classes, status groups, whatever you want to call them. Um, you have the homoioi uh, in Greek... Uh, the equals, um, or the Spart, or, the, or otherwise known as the Spartans. So these are the full Spartan citizens, um, uh, and the basis of their wealth is agricultural. They all own land in kind of Laconia and Messenia, which is the kind of basis of the Spartan possession. So that's kind of the two modern regions of the Southern Peloponnese, and they are tilled by helots, kind of which comes from the uh, people used to think that it was derived from the place name Helos, but this is philologically impossible. Um, it actually comes from the Greek verb hyreo, so they are people who have been seized. Um, I mean, that's the etymology. That doesn't necessarily mean that's the real historical circumstance that led to them being slaves. Um, so the helots are a slave class. They're, they're privately owned slaves. And then you have lots of other communities, and these are by far the least well understood uh, the perioikoi, the dwellers around. And this is essentially any other polis settlement in Laconia and Messenia that is somehow subject to Spartan rule. These people are considered uh, Spartans, lacedaimonioi in Greek, but they are not full citizens, they do not have political rights. So it's this kind of quite set social structure that, for my period at least, seems to have a certain stability. I think I would also push back a bit on the extent to which Sparta is doing things strangely, which I think is one of the main perceptions that I have lost in my further study of Sparta. It is not unfair to say that their civic arrangements are unusual, but you can look at plenty of other Greek cities that are doing similar sorts of things. So in Hellenistic uh, epigraphy, for example, so the Hellenistic period is... Uh, roughly from the uh, death of Alexander the Great in 323 to uh, around 146 BC. I mean, it's controversial. So the Hellenistic period, you get kind of regular decrees that are formulated as the polis and its perioikoi. So it's not always the case that perioikoi means something technical. But that's the kind of basic thing that makes the civic structure weird. The one other oddity is the size of its territory, which is a kind of important feature I didn't discuss initially. It uh, controls around 8,000 square kilometres of territory. So uh, for, for context, I think Attica is around 2,000 square kilometres. If that's wrong, then, you know, put in a editor little thing in <laughs> to correct me. Editor's saying, note. I don't know. Tom, Tom Clements was wrong. And if you want me to come and record that to correct myself, <laughs> then that's something I'm very happy to do. But, yeah. So, so that, that, that is kind of how roughly how Sparta works in very schematic terms. You mentioned that you were focusing on territorial issues. Can you mm. go into more depth on, on where specifically your research questions yes. focused? Uh, yes, so it stems from the problem that Sparta 
does have this large territory and we don't have a sufficient degree of understanding about the means by which they sought to occupy or control this territory. And this got me thinking on the notion of territory itself, which when I started doing this work, I thought was a fairly sound and stable concept that had some meaning. What I've learned is that most historians, when they use the term territory, they think about it very unthinkingly and basically think that all historical regions are structured something like the post-Westphalian state system in that, well, you know, you've got states and they have territories and that's good, let's study them. And anyone who has tried to define territory, theoretically speaking, just does not have a clear idea as to how territory is defined or what they want to achieve by defining territory. And so they just think that it's anything. So I wanted to understand how... So I've done case studies on Mesopotamia and the Mycenaean palaces to think about how they think about territory and how they appear to define it through their actions and also modelling the weakness of ancient states. The ancient states are not kind of states in the modern sense, they are very particular sorts of entities, um, as, is the, as is the modern state. So it was, think, it was thinking about how Sparta functioned in that sense, how it made claims about territory, but how it actually occupied it. It's kind of accessing that, that kind of bipolarity. In a sense. And can you tell me a bit about the evidence that you're using? Um, you're dealing with a period where you know there's there's not very much evidence, and people weren't writing things down mm. very much in mm. the same way they do now. Yes. Tell me about the yes. the type of evidence that you're using and yes. and the difficulties, particularly around you know language and translating, because um, that's something that I find in my own work. I've even been told, but why do you need to even know the language? Why do you have to translate? Mm. It's Surely it's mm. all been done. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there isn't much evidence uh, for, for this phenomenon. Um, there's a lot of interpretation involved. This is quite easy because it means that I am able to make stuff up, and I do very regularly. And if someone challenges me on this, then I'll just say, well, how do you know? That's not a threat. I want to make... I'm not, you know... I, yeah, so th there are three categories of evidence. There is literary evidence, so this is kind of the great literary texts of ancient Greece, Herodotus, Thucydides, etc., etc. Sparta is notable for producing very little epigraphy, very little inscribed evidence, so there's very little there. The final body of evidence that I'm using is two uh, intensive field walking surveys uh, that were conducted in the 80s and the 90s, respectively. The uh, Laconia survey, a catchy name, and the even more catchily named uh, Pelos Regional Archaeological Project, otherwise known as PRAP, uh, which is a horrid word, kind of sounds like a boil or a canker or you know something you need sawn off by a chiropodist. So the Clonia Survey and PRAP um, have been important because the field survey allows you to kind of model rural histories and rural questions um, in a limited way, because they're quite small areas in the grand scheme of things. But yeah, so those are my three main data sets. On the subject of translation, I think that it is, you know, it's always important to know the original language in a lot of detail, and that, you know, published translations are often wrong. They are based on interpretation. The uh, Oxford World's Classics translation of Thucydides uh, is is very is bad in places. It really makes quite uh, dogmatic decisions 
about how to translate Thucydides, um, which are not necessarily rooted in the text. But uh, I, mean, I won't go into specific examples, but I'll just say that if Martin Hammond is listening, then he needs to do it again. It's not good enough. You know, it's about time that, you know, Oxford saw sense and, and redid it. I think we've just lost a listener. He tweeted me just the other day to say how much he loves the podcast. He has he has a very active active Twitter following. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, I'm I'm breaking the silence here and now. So you know, if again, if Martin Hammond is still listening, <laughs> I'm coming for you. He's turned it off in disgust. <laughs> well, I know where he lives. <laughs> well, no, we're facing a Twitter war here. Yeah, yeah. we're starting some beef. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm quite excited because I've been thinking it's about time we rose our profile with some beef. Yeah. Well, thankfully, yeah. like everything on Twitter, a war isn't real. <laughs> like everything <laughs> yeah. in the world. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> well, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like academic beef. Like, it feels so advanced. I feel like you're a real academic once you've got a beef, but mm. you're ready to kind of actually yeah. Yeah. stake your claim on. I feel like I haven't picked mine yet, yeah. even though I love to, you know, if I'm writing, I'm like, right, who do I think is wrongest on this, and how can I get up against them? But I just, I feel like I haven't found one... Mm, I, I'm probably not allowed to beef with Foucault. Yeah. You need a, yeah, you need a hill to die on. I mean, why not? Foucault, you know, go for the big ones. Go big or go home, basically. My Twitter bio is, I never met a hill I wouldn't die on. <laughs> Foucault, Foucault's laughing at you. Yeah. That's what someone once said about me, about reading Foucault. Don't think that he wrote any word that he wanted you to take seriously. Yeah. It's all a big joke. Yeah. Um. My issue with him is not that he's wrong, because he's right on loads of things. It's that he's too confident. I just feel like he's got a bad attitude. <laughs> yeah. I think that a lot of that is how academic discourse has changed over the years. That, you know, it fit in the 50s, it was perfectly acceptable to write a book of essays which you had written quickly after your holiday without access to a proper library and then get it published. Yeah. Whereas, you know, yeah, we're supposed we need to, to slave away for three years to have some thoughts on something. Mm. And that it needs to be unbelievably specific, you know, this tiny little grain of knowledge that we think we can add to the sum total of human knowledge and then we sort of offer it up tentatively. Is this okay? Meanwhile, a few decades mm. ago, some guy's like, I've had the biggest idea ever. And if anyone doesn't like it, well, too bad. And they will they will die on that hill. They, yeah. will, they will spend the next 50 years defending that argument, no mm. matter what comes in their way. Mm. <laughs> I wish I had that kind of confidence. That's it. Like, you've started, you've started an academic beef, so it looks like yes. you're a real academic now. I Exciting. should say, I don't actually really know who Martin Hammond is. He's just the person whose name is on the front of the translation. <laughs> I've never looked up this guy. Yeah, um, but I just assume he's on Twitter because, you know, everyone is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not, but... Um, <laughs> uh, everyone else. Well, I am, but I might as well not be. Yeah. The, the threat still stands. I just, you yeah. know, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to make too much of it. I think it's quite important. Like, you don't actually want to give your nemesis too much time. You know, mm. like, if you bother to look him up on Wikipedia, already you've spent too much time on someone who's obviously not worth it. Just mm. pick a nemesis and just go with it. But equally... If they don't have a Wikipedia page, then who are they to me? Yeah, they're too small. Why are they worth exactly. my time? Yeah, you don't. You don't want to. I go am. There. I am a titan. 
you know. Yeah, that's. Really, I think that's the mindset I, one has to have. And I need to choose my nemesis mm. well. Yeah, change, I find that all change the, the world of Sparta. Yeah. Exactly. Classicist still relevant, even though it's been two thousand five hundred years. <laughs> oh, I'm not a classicist. I'm an ancient historian. I want to be very ah. clear about this. Could you give us give us um, the the difference between the two? Well, I think they do similar things, but classicists are essentially literary scholars who are interested in studying the texts of texts in Greek and Latin. Ancient historians are interested in those texts as compendia of information. Um, now, that's not to say that you know ancient historians don't engage with the literary issues, but equally. Um, you know, you've got all that. I, I do a lot of comparative history, so classics doesn't really seem to fit that label. Um, as well as you know, classics from Latin classicus, this kind of notion of canon being a pretty problematic notion that is accepted by classics pretty, pretty kind of uncritically. Um, you know, oh yeah, these these texts are great, aren't they? Let's you know never question that. Not to say that they're not good, but you've just got this inbuilt narrative of the history of literature that I think is very problematic. And as well as people don't know what it is. No. People don't know what it is. And I think that, like, <laughs> this, is, this is something that, that kind of, I don't know, maybe classicists don't quite acknowledge, that people don't know what classics is. If you tell people you're a classicist, they will not know what you're talking about. And that's not their fault. No. Um, and or they'll say Jane Austen, they'll say, you know, as they mean, they mean classics of literature and they don't go back as far as... Yeah. as you know, even even two thousand years ago, they then you know, and then yeah. you say Homer, and they're like, oh, oh, that. But that's not even getting close to mm. what you might be working on. It's yeah. it's high, It's a very very opaque discipline. Yeah. Mm. Well, a lot of scholarship is useless, mm. and there's nothing there's there's nothing wrong with that. But part of the problem is being this whole ridiculous notion that you need to convince everyone that your research is worth something. My research not isn't worth anything. I, I want to probe this problem a bit, but what I meant to say is that, you know, it, it, it engenders social change, uh, it's going to solve the homelessness crisis, it's going to end poverty, and all those, you know, all those things should happen, I want to make that clear. <laughs> you could get the impression from that statement that I'm some kind of right-wing reactionary. Um, but the, no, like, you know, a lot of knowledge is useless. It's not good to to be so time-consuming with just probing these texts and this archaeology but I want to do it and that's fine um, yeah we have to spend so much time now almost sort of justifying the fact of our existence in the kind of I'm going to say it, the neoliberal institution yes. <laughs> yeah. that there has to be some reason why what we're doing will make someone not us, money mm. yeah. Uh, the, yeah the, the sort of the idea of knowledge for knowledge's sake or the fact that it might just be good to know this, that there yeah. is something that we don't know that we could know, and that could be an end in and of itself, basically gone. And in the humanities, broadly speaking, the good thing about curiosity being an end in itself, in pursuing that curiosity, you're not going to kill anyone, which will happen in science. Mm. Um, <laughs> Although I might uh, accidentally summon a demon, which could be catastrophic. That's true, but I mean, imagine if you did it, that, that would really change the world. Absolutely. Well, that, I did research impact. I did notice that during the health and safety, at the beginning of my first year, nobody nobody went into that. Nobody went into what happens if you do your ritual wrong. And, and you know, right. I think it could be a, a crisis. Um, 
all I've got to contribute is, well, there are some prosperity spells. You never know, they might make you rich. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. We can just use that to just justify. Yeah, like... Have, have you ever summoned a demon? Not successfully yet. Oh, you, you're, so you you're trying? Know. You never know. It may happen. <laughs> yes, but I'm is that, is that is that... No, you never know it may happen in terms of you're part of a pyramid scheme or you know <laughs> or you never know She's it might happen She's working on Greco-Roman Egypt and everything's a pyramid scheme <laughs> or you never know it that was that was very good <laughs> that was um, class <laughs> I, I'm not actually laughing out loud because I'm paralysed with jealousy that I didn't come up with that um I believe laughter is healing I think you can go home now <laughs> you're just like I've done it see ya <laughs> For listeners, I've gone bright red. And I still have a moustache. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's good. <laughs> so you were talking about your demon. Yeah, my demon. Uh, <laughs> we all have one, um, according to various... Maybe you're trying to summon one. Um, uh, I've been investigating the, the use of uh, actual experimental archaeology, which could take things in a new direction. So we're even going to do a we're going to do an experimental archaeology workshop building figurines. And oh, these uh, are those big works terracotta out, ones. Oh, these are little terracotta ones. Oh, so, you know, take them home in your in your pocket almost, ex- mm. except that they're clay, so they're very heavy. But uh, yeah, it it could all kick off end of March. Right. You, could, you could finally get oh, the demon. Finally, it's going to kick yeah. off. I mean, that that would be a fantastic end to my to my thesis. Go into my fiver and just say, "There's a demon." What more do I need to say? Yeah, I feel like that any question they had for you, you could be like, allow me to refer you to my colleague. Yeah, um, I, I, I have summoned Abrasax as an assistant. He is here to answer all your questions about ancient magic at, during that period. <laughs> Question one, is it real? Yes. <laughs> and how does it work? Well, I just demonstrated. Here, yeah. here you go. I just yeah. demonstrated. <laughs> Holy cow, I'm on a roll. I didn't actually like that one. Oh, fair I didn't enough. think that was as good. Mm, reasonable. I, I, I much prefer your earlier work. <laughs> I've passed it. Um, which I'm still laughing about. Uh, yeah, you ju- you just, it's just getting commercial now. You, <laughs> you guys were right. I should have gone. I should have gone out on a high. I'm going to go out of work. I'd sell out. I'd sell out. <laughs> Finally I next. mean, hopefully my PhD is going to get bought out by Google. Mm. Um, uh, which, yeah. I'm, which I'm waiting for. I can imagine them being into it. Yeah. Well, I feel like this is a great moment to kind of transition into the final part of the podcast where we ask our guests if they have a funny story from their research life to share with us. Uh, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> uh, Very good. But, but I can talk amusingly uh, why I think that uh, research is quite boring. Um, but <laughs> uh, I mean, I do have some funny stories. I I just feel like as soon as I'm asked to t- say something funny, that I the, forget any funny thing I could on, possibly yeah. know. The idea um, of being funny. I mean, most most of the time, I, it is just me sat in a room reading uh, or on a computer reading, and I think that you know people have not been on. You know, people find that amusing sometimes. Uh, they come up to me and they, you know, hit me a bit and you know, say, "Oh, stop, stop what you're doing." Mm. We, we, we can't stop laughing. Um, <laughs> uh, no, really, stop it. Stop it. Don't stop what you're doing. I, I, I spent a lot of time uh, in Greece, and I was going around the Peloponnese quite a bit, so just travelling in the region that I study. And 
Uh, is that a door? It was, yes. Oh, good. So this is soundproof? We, we <laughs> not amazingly so, no. Right. We do our best to edit this. Nice. Yeah, they're, they're so respectful of the fact that we're just recording next door while they're doing their live shows. Mm-hmm. We often have a backing track. <laughs> yeah, some real bassy music yeah. coming yeah. through. I mean, you'd almost question the design of the building to <laughs> put a door in the middle. Anyway, that's yeah. not... Yeah, so I'm going to tell a funny, a funny story. Um, so, yeah, so I think that kind of... Uh, Humanities research, in terms of how it's actually practiced, is fundamentally uninteresting um, because you're just sat there reading. But I did feel a kind of great sense of existential dread when I was travelling around the Peloponnese. And so I can't drive, which um, in Greece is quite hard, particularly if you work on rural Greece. And so the main question I was asked when I was just getting the bus everywhere, um, which I turned out was often just school buses. So it was the public bus network, but it's also me, an otherwise unknown man. Yeah, can I ask, did you have the moustache at this point? I didn't, no. That's probably no. a good decision. But I'm inferring some something about my moustache, which I actually resent a bit. <laughs> uh, I grew this as a fashion accessory, and I want the people at home to appreciate that. Like I said, it looks incredible. And I'm not on any register. No. Yeah. Yeah, good. Can, can you say that, please? Yeah, so Tom is not on any kind of moustache register. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll yeah. have the legal team... Yeah, yeah, we'll issue draw. a statement. No, I know this podcast doesn't have a legal team. <laughs> we are the legal team. I mean, we're all legal. We're all, we're all proper. Yeah. We're all, None of um, us are crimes. But the the question I got asked pretty regularly because they couldn't really understand why a British guy was just travelling around Greece, rural Greece in March was just, why are you here? What are you doing? And I, I couldn't really answer them. I... So, I mean, that was, that's funny. Yeah. (laughs) It's also, it's funny in the way that a meme is because it's just incredibly relatable. I Mm. was in Vietnam in June and, you know, on my own, but not on holiday. So people would be like, Mm. are you here on holiday? I'd be like, no. Do you work on Vietnam? I do, I work in the Vietnam War. And I had to be like, I don't know, man, my supervisor told me I should probably go to Vietnam. (laughs) Oh yeah, no. yeah. I'm sure, it was fun. Yeah, it was. It was great. Beautiful country, amazing people. But it, I wouldn't say I got any research done. Well, no. I mean, I think that you know, one's approach when travelling abroad should be: I'm here to learn, but I'm not here to work. Yeah. If work at, get if any work now, that's obviously not what I would say to research councils. Yeah. And if like you know, that statement comes back to me. Yeah. Again, I it, didn't. I didn't say that. I didn't say it. AHRC, if you're listening, I did so much research out there. Just so much. Thanks for paying for it. Oh, they're not listening. They're only about one person in office. (laughs) (laughs) AHRC is a kind of fictional body. Just an imagined um, figure. It comes into being every October whenever they have their conference, and it's a nightmare. And they disappear again. It's just an empty office with one telephone. (laughs) It's an empty office with one telephone and a quantity of money, an undefined quantity, but sometimes you can have it and sometimes you can't. They still haven't asked my receipts, which they should have. I provided mine, (laughs) but no one acknowledged receipt. Well, in which case? No one asked for them. No one's asked for them. Yeah. Anyway. That's not an invitation to. (laughs) to Secrets of the academic community. What more do you want to hear than a podcast about expenses claims? <laughs> You're right, this is going to be our funniest episode yet. Are you going to insert adverts into this? 
<laughs> our sponsors are going to go wild for this one. Auditor, is yeah. it? Or? <laughs> Mattresses no. brought to you by Sparta. Oh, yeah, me undies. Yeah. yeah. All, all the good podcast sponsors. Oh, yeah, all the best all ones. On HelloFresh. <laughs> Yeah, our 13 listeners. Just, I think they're keeping HelloFresh in business. Absolutely. What Absolutely. is HelloFresh? Like a recipe delivery service. So, like, you get a box full of food. Uh, hold on, I'm doing free, <laughs> free advertising for HelloFresh. And it's bad as far as I know. <laughs> I mean, if I might say, it sounds horrible. Mm. Yeah. yeah, just go to the shop, people. My my thing about that is, aside from the fact that it's horrendously expensive for what it is, it's like you get the explicit specific quantities for each recipe, and I'm like, but what if you fuck it up? What do you get if it get it wrong, and you end up having to go to the shop and then buy more ingredients because you got you used up the ingredients that you had and screwed up yeah. the whole process? You might as well just get a recipe and get the stuff yourself. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so we're never going to guess. We're never going to get sponsorship from HelloFresh now. As is traditional, we're ending the podcast with a slam on meal delivery service HelloFresh. Um, they're our new Twitter beef. We're so, starting all the fights today. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're very feisty today. Must be. Is it a full moon? Yeah, it's coffee. That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> I, I'm happy I, to put it down to my malign disruptive influence. Yeah, that's true, actually. It has kind of been a chaotic element in the room yeah. today. We've got some demonic forces going on in the background <gasps> we can blame. Exciting. But you haven't summoned a demon. <laughs> Unless... I mean, I have to say, I hadn't really encountered you much before this term. Jolie's been working on getting a demon on the go. You're both from the same department. Are, are you implying that I don't functionally exist? I'm d- no, you do exist, well, but I just feel like you've been brought into corporeality through the malign influence of Jolie's dark magic. This is why no one will share an office with me. <laughs> Everyone who's been offered an office space with me, with me is not, not taking it up. It's like, oh, I'm not going near that office. Yes. <laughs> Extremely haunted. Right, this episode's got completely out of hand. Tom, thank you so much for being our guest. It has been a delight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, and as always... Don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.